Philippians chapter 4, looking at the collected commands. The collected commands and promises of Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Um, a section that on the front might seem challenging because he's going to say things and you're like, how can you do that? But on the other hand, if you think about what Paul is commanding us, it's very easy and very fun. Last hour, as Mike said, we talked about the, um, the rationale for looking at God's commands, the way to think about it. I think biblically is every time God gives you a command, he's giving you like, like a blank check to deposit and, and making you a billionaire. If you just do what he says, every command, don't do that. Well, don't do it because it's bad for you. When he says, this is what I want for you. Well, you do it because it's God loving you and telling you, this is how you relate to me. And so we talked about Christian duty last hour as a gift. The duty that God gives us is a gift. And I'm not going to belabor that. Now I want to talk about the actual commands God gives you through the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter four, verses four through nine. It's just a collection of commands. This is how you take a church that getting it right as partners in the ministry of the gospel. They're going into Norwich and sharing Christ with the families that God opens doors that we can go share with. Okay. When you take a group of believers that are getting it right and you say, you're doing well now here's let's do better. This is what it looks like. This is the challenge that God issues for us in our daily walk as we're getting it right. Kyreta. Kyreta. What does that word mean in Greek? You know what that word means. It's the two commands in Philippians 4, 4 rejoice in the Lord. Now this is a present active imperative, and that is not important for you to know, but I think it is insightful to know that that means this is an ongoing all the time responsibility because you are in the Lord ongoing and all the time. And so this is the crazy radical thing that will change your life. If you embrace it, if you would load this into your conscience to say, this is the person I'm supposed to be because of what the word of God says. If you let this inform your conscience, you will change. And it is this, I am always responsible to have joy about my so great salvation because it's always true. I don't think Philippians 4, 4 uh, is, is very easy to do if you don't, if you're not secure in your salvation, if you don't know, if you're in the Lord, if you don't know that he has you, no matter what, then you're going to have trouble rejoicing about something you don't know that is true for you. But if you do know that you have Christ and more importantly, that Christ has you, then you have a constant. I mean, we have an all the time reason to rejoice. That's power. That is the dynamics of the Christian mental attitude. And I want to say something about this that is a little different from our culture. It doesn't mean I'm always in some sort of ecstatic, you know, explosion or something. I'm not always necessarily super rosy. It's not talking about that. It's saying you need to constantly be engaging the truth that you have Christ and all that that means. Colossians 3.1 says it a little differently, a little differently, but it's the same ethics. It's the same attitude. It's the same mechanics. Philippians, Colossians, the next book over. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, if you've been raised up, see here, the perfect tense, if it's past and true for you in the past, if you have been raised up with Christ Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Keep seeking. It means put your attention, your focus, your, your imagination, your concentration on Christ. It's called occupation with Christ. 
And if I have that, if Jesus is my focus and I've been raised up with him, so I know my destiny is in Christ, then I have beloved the basis for joy. I can rejoice. And if I don't have my occupation of my thinking, if I'm not dwelling on Christ and the things above, I don't have a reason to rejoice and it, it's irrelevant. And that's why if we watch very closely what the apostle Paul says and the summary command that you read real quick, but you think about real slow, listen to what he says, rejoice in the Lord in Curio. rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your hardship. That's stated elsewhere. But the reason you rejoice in your hardship is because, you know, God is using it for some glorious purpose. And he tells you that. Well, what's the purpose? He doesn't tell you. God has it and he's using it. So trust him. That's Romans 8, 28. But this is a constant responsibility that Paul lays on us. I'm supposed to be rejoicing. For, now, listen, if you get your sensibilities from popular culture today, I'm ragging on it a lot today. But if you get your, your, your idea of what's good or what's desirable from the world around you, and we all struggle with the leeching of the world from the culture into us. If you get your idea of this, then rejoicing or joy is irrelevant. It's an unused ability for people, anyone older than a, 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 just a young child. Joy is the feeling that you get when there is some reason, some great thing that you know is true, some really good news. And this is our, this is our detriment. We neglect our so great salvation. We forget our, our position in Christ. We forget the Lord Jesus and his plan and his purposes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let me illustrate with the young people and the work. We just heard from some of our young people that were able to come together, build a, a rationale and then a plan and then execute a plan, phase one. Hey, there's lots of work to go. We're trying to come up with something to do with the kids from our Good News Club, some sort of open house field day thing in May to open the summer. And I think that we're on a good footing to do something with those people because we've just reinforced that we're here and we love them and we've represented Christ to them. Look, there's no boast in what we've done. There's a bo only boast in what Jesus Christ is doing. He provides the ability in God, the Holy Spirit. He provides the, the, the command in his word that the spirit has inspired. He provides the resources that have made us able to do what we can do. And he provided the door open for these people that would say, yes, you can come visit. We've done nothing except love him. And he can, that's the fruit of the spirit is love. That's God working in you too. There is no boast in anything you do or anything you are, as we've seen in chapter three of Philippians, but the Lord Jesus. And this is quite a boast. You have God, the son in, in the flesh of man. That's the Christmas miracle of the incarnation. You have God, the son exalted at the right hand of the father. And by the baptism of God, the Holy spirit, you are in union with Jesus Christ. And so you share his past, present, and future. You are buried with Christ. That's, that's Colossians 3.1. You've been raised up with Christ. Romans 6. You have been exalted and glorified at God's right hand with Christ. And you are as the sons of God, the heirs with Christ of God. In Romans 8, you're going to come back with him to establish his kingdom. That is who you are. 
because of who God is and what God has said he's going to do with you. And that's why you rejoice. Now that message is unknown. Unknown in evangelical dumb today. Christians can't even tell you what the kingdom is, but they're pretty sure it's important and they're hoping to serve it. Well, well, you know, we're just serving the kingdom. In what way are you serving the kingdom? In what sense is there a kingdom? Do you mean Jesus is ruling now and this is it? We can't even have an election. We're so free and we're so committed to a, a, a legal system that's been broken. We can't even have an election without there being some serious questions, serious problems. Nobody will answer, well, there's nothing with the machines. Why are there Ethernet cables hooked up in the pictures that they've shown us of the machines? How are these machines hooked up to the Internet where people can manipulate them? Oh, there's nothing. There's no, there's no evidence. I've seen pictures of big blue Ethernet cables in machines that are not supposed to be connected to the Internet. I saw it. Well, that was a picture. You weren't actually physically present, so you can't say you're an eyewitness. How many eyewitnesses do we need? Don't get me started on the election. We can't even have an election. My point is that we're not in the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom. We are not experiencing the rule of Jesus on earth from Jerusalem today, which is the expectation from all the prophets and what Jesus says of the kingdom. When he says my kingdom is not of this world, he does not mean that he's not coming to set up his actual kingdom. It means that this world system is not this kingdom. You're not in it. You're looking for it. We're expecting it. Now, in a sense, understand we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son in Colossians. We are citizens of a kingdom that is coming. But what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus isn't doing it now physically, politically on earth, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And if he was, we would be crushed as a nation like earthenware for the wickedness of this people. That the righteous laws that we've written trying to build from what God gave Israel in the founding of this country, that these are being perverted to oppress the righteous as a kind of baseline. Now, I'm not Habakkuk standing on the, 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 the roof of the church saying, how long, O oh Lord? Because I know that he's going to do what he's going to do in his time. He's not going to tell us how long. But what I also want you to understand is that people don't get our eschatology. They don't understand Christian eschatology. That you are living now in the trouble of now, not for now. You're doing what you do now in light of what's coming. Because you have an appointment not with a voting booth or with a recruiter for the military. All these things are righteous civic duties we have as unto the Lord within our national entity. But your real citizenship is in heaven and you have an appointment with Jesus Christ at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ. And every single decision you make and every single decision I make is going to be part of that conversation with my Savior. Because it says he's going to judge me for the deeds that I've done in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. And that conversation is not about my sins. It's not really talking about sin per se. The sins were covered at the cross. It's talking about really the sin of squandering your infinite spiritual resources to be about God's work here and now. This is the Christian life. And it's all under the understand. You know what you're supposed to be doing and you have a reason to rejoice because these people said, yeah, we'd love to hear from the Christians. Yeah. And God did that. 
And we can rejoice in that in this moment, but for what? For eternity. Because some of these people that don't know Christ and are bound for the lake of fire are going to come to know Christ. And for the most part, we know it's going to be young people. The little kids believe when someone loves them and tells them of Jesus. And, and, that, and it's a really powerful method God gave us to evangelize children. But what I'm saying is this command to rejoice requires spiritual mindedness. It requires a constant attention to the Lord Jesus. It requires a commitment to be about his work and see the joy of letting him, of him letting you do the work. And th this joy is here for you and it's not optional. He doesn't say you might want to think about taking me up on the offer of joy. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I have a prayer. I pray for you. Something I ask God for. Pretty, pretty gnarly, pretty rough prayer. I ask God that you will have this in him and nowhere else. That's what's wrong. That's what's happening. Preachers asking God that I can't get my contentment, my satisfaction, my joy in life from anywhere but in him. <sighs> pray that for me too, please. I want you to have this. Paul wants you to have this. <clears throat> right after saying you need to personally enjoy God, rejoice in the Lord. That's your default setting. How you doing? Well, I'm Eeyore. Well, Eeyore is not rejoicing in the Lord. All right. How you feeling? Well, my back hurts or I just, you know, things aren't going great. Can't even have an election. Uh, whatever the reason that you're down. They're going to close everything back down as though that's a good thing to do at all. These are, no, these are not rejoicing in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord. Now, the next thing he says, the next thing he says is a mission statement. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And now he says, you need to proclaim him by your conduct, by your character, by your person. You need to show him to others. It's a verse five is a mission command. And you know it as the gentleness. It says in my Bible, let your gentle spirit be uh, made known to all men, I think. But this is the Greek. He fronts in Greek your gentleness because it's the focus of his attention. And you don't put the thing that's the subject of the passive verb in front in Greek unless you're making something focal. Now, not your strong, powerful, screaming at the church, pounding the pulpit, preaching. Okay, that's not what he says. He says your gentleness, and it's an adjective. And an adjective is not a good noun in English. So we've got to turn an adjective into a noun. You've got to adjective your gen gentle. And you don't tell someone to let your gentle be seen. Be that doesn't make sense. We don't yet have a language so destroyed by sloth that we do that. So we throw a ness on an adjective and make it gentleness. But there's no word spirit anywhere in any manuscript, whether it's the Texas Receptus or any other, to say your gentle spirit. It doesn't say spirit. It says your gentleness. It's the character quality. And this word, as we saw in the men's huddle yesterday, epiakes, this epiake, this word means not insisting on every possible stricture or standard. In other words, it is, it is the opposite of legalistic one-upsmanship. 
It is the magnanimity of grace that is as a sinner extended to other sinners. Because we've received the grace of God and his forgiveness. So we are forgiving. This is another way of saying, in a sense, be forgiving, be open, be releasing instead of trying to hold a burden on someone. That's the, that's the general approach we have. Oh, well, you know, they do this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, they're sinners. Now, how do I know his orientation of saying the gentleness, the, 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 genitive, ver, the genitive pronoun here I'm taking as a characteristic of you, the, the, the gentleness which characterizes you. Not a good English you know, Bible static translation is my church time paraphrase. The gentleness which characterizes you. Let it be made known to all men. Make it known. Make it known. This is a mission statement. It's not about being in church. This is what we do. We show up in church and all of a sudden we're, you know, we're gentle, we're kind, we're whatever. We're, the holy rosy glow of how we're supposed to be church people is upon us. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The difference between how you speak in the car and how you speak in the pew. And some of you are like, what's he talking about? And others are like, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> right? This isn't even talking about how you treat other Christians. It's talking about the world. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. It's a mission idea. And this is the idea. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I'm trying to show the other sinners how they can get that grace as well. That's our stance. We're not the good people and they're the bad people. That's not the way you do it. You might be righteous lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And your kids may think like Sodomites. They may have married them. And the Sodomites say, no, we're staying here. Read the story. Okay, in Genesis. But, but you're supposed to be adopting a stance where you're open with the grace of God. And you don't reject people because they're sinners but you don't embrace their sins either. And we don't validate their sins and we don't reinforce their sins. And that message of kindness and gentleness will be taken as bigotry and hate speech and the insane culture in which we find ourselves here post-Christian United States. To be open and gracious with a sinner and say, yeah, that's sin and it's horrible and it destroys you and Jesus paid for it. That is now hate speech, depending on which sin we're talking about. But this, still, it's the attitude. Compassion, kindness, graciousness, magnanimity. This is who we're supposed to be. Gentleness doesn't mean we're just talking kind of like, like weak. That's not what it means. It means that I am in a very strong position, not insisting on having all, my, all the dues paid. I'm insisting that Christ is gracious and he extends that grace and he's paid all the dues. That's the idea of Epiachus. It, there is a, a sense of gentleness and humility, humbling. And um, as we saw yesterday, guys, in Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes, the gentle or the meek. Okay. And it's the fruit of the spirit is the same word, proutes. This is a different word. And it means basically humbling yourself. The, the, the sense of this word here is that we're open and gracious to people because yeah, they're sinners. And Jesus died for them. 
And yeah, their practices may be taking them to, to, to an early death. And, and we, do, we, we love people and try to tell them not to play in the street sexually because the bus is coming and it's going to hit them. This is a mission command. So let's characterize, let's, let's catalog our commands. We're to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So we got a double underline from Paul that that's our constant attitude. And now we are to make known the gentleness, the, the, the graciousness, the magnanimity of this word in Greek for gentleness. We're to make this known to all men. I'm glad when people say, we don't have anything for our kids for Christmas this year. Can you help us? I'm glad when they do that. Because they think that we will be gracious and kind to them. Now, what, what, well, you're going to be taken by grifters are going to come and take, take you for a, a ride. No, they're not. Because we sit down and talk with them. We pray with them. We share Christ with them. Lord, any open door you give me, let me make, have the wisdom to walk through it. Right? All right. Now let's get into the weeds of verse 6. Verse 6 is the first command we have with a promise in this collection of commands. And it's a command. And I take heat for this. I don't, I, and it, it, it's okay. You got a couple of present imperatives which are given as a portrayal of action that you're ongoing, that you're internal to this action. Somehow it's ongoing or it's constant responsibility. If you have a, a command, for example, and the other way to make a command in Greek is an aorist command, generally. An aorist tense command is a general statement that is, it's a summary statement. This is an internal, sort of an ongoing idea. And it means that you and I are always responsible for what he commands here. And the two commands are, be anxious for nothing, but let our requests be made known to God. Two commands. And they're polar opposites. I'm going to worry, fixate, become, become just completely consumed by the fear of loss, and all fear basically is fear of loss. I mean, all the, the illicit fear, not the fear of the Lord, but the fear of loss of something, safety, security, health, whatever. I'm going to fixate on that to the point that I cannot think of anything else. Be totally compromised and completely disconnected, divorced from reality because God is holding all things together by his powerful word. He's got you. I'm either going to go here and live here in fear and worry or I'm going to let my request be made known unto God. It's the two options. And this is the interesting thing. As the old gospel song says, leave it there. I'm not supposed to worry, so I choose not to. This is the left side of the pulpit. I'm not going to worry, so I choose not to. So I come over here and I take my burdens to the Lord and I leave it there. And, and, and I'm not going to worry about it. I take it to God. What do you do? What happens to you? Now, some of you are going to say, I've tried it. Some of you have told me, probably not you, but some of the church family at times have told me, I've tried it. I've, I've tried not to worry and I take my burdens to the Lord and then they're back. And, and, and what am I going to tell you from Luke chapter 11 on the model prayer? Yeah, look at him. Keep telling him because it's persistence. Then Luke 11, you, you, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. God wants you to keep telling him. He wants you to keep telling him, but I already told him I shouldn't have to tell him again. Right. Yeah, that's our arrogance. See, there we are. God tells me, keep asking until you get what he wants to give you. But I think in my arrogance, I shouldn't have to ask him more than once. I mean, he knows God knows what I want. I've already asked him. and He didn't do what I asked. 
I rubbed the lamp, no genie, next, uh, next antique show, right? That's how we are with God, and that's not the relationship God calls you to. What you've got is you barely touched the accelerator. The car shifted. It's an automatic. It shifted, you know, into second gear a little bit, and then you're like, we didn't win the race, and you stopped driving. And God's like, you need to get out of your driveway and get on the interstate. We've got work to do. You keep talking to him. You keep talking to him. So this is a command. It's a twofold command. Do not worry about anything. It's not like, it's not, it's not a figure of speech that he gives it as a command. All right. Yes, things come into our lives that we're afraid of. We see something that, that shocks us. That's, that's Matthew 14. When Peter's looking at Jesus, and not at the water and the waves, he can walk on water. When Peter stops looking at Jesus and looks at the, the trouble, he sinks. That's how it is. You keep your eyes on Jesus. But just because there's trouble and God knows it, and he knows at times we're going to look away from him and be afraid, doesn't mean that we're not responsible to be anxious for nothing. Because we're rejoicing in the Lord, because we're letting our gentleness be made known to all men, so we're not anxious and and worrying. The worrywart Christian is a horrible witness for Christ. Think about it. Think about when you're in your spazziest moments. Ding dong, you're spazzing about whatever. Usually it's me. We're late to church, okay? So, okay, we're spazzing, ding dong, and there are the people that you're supposed to share Christ with in the moment. And you're spazzing about whatever. I can't find, it's usually, you know, I can't find the car keys or something. You're like, well, you just put them on the hook. I, I know. Thank you. So anyway, so, so you're, you're, you can't get what you're trying to get. And then all of a sudden, obliquely, like an envelopment from the side comes someone you're supposed to share the Lord with. But in the moment of being a spaz, not thinking about the Lord, not rejoicing your salvation, but worried about whatever the situation is in the moment, you're a terrible witness. Because you're basically saying God isn't sovereign. He isn't omnipotent. He doesn't care for me. These bad things that I'm worried about, that I'm worried of loss and I'm fearing loss, these are consuming me and I'm not living eternally. So what are you offering to the person? Hey, you know what, Christian? I have enough stress in my life already. If what you're doing in your pinball brain of like bouncing back and forth between your problems, if this is what it means to have the rest and the joy of Christianity, count me out. I can just watch a movie or something and chill out or, or use some substances. I mean, we have all kinds of ways to avoid anxiety. I mean, isn't there a pill for that today, right? See, but this is the Christian ethic. And he's saying it in general, responsible, ongoing commands. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and petition. This always bothered me as a kid. We memorized it in Sunday school as a memory verse. I'm sure I was taught the right way to think about this, but I don't remember that because I was probably drifting off because I was a knucklehead. You ever been a knucklehead? All right, by prayer and supplication. What is supplication? Jerry, what does it say in verse uh, six for the King James by, by prayer and supplication? Is that what it says? See, with, with Thanksgiving, right. What is prayer and what is supplication? And what's the difference? Well, Paul doesn't just throw words together because he's not thinking about something specific. Prayer is a general term and it means I'm talking to God. It could be like, help, that could be prayer. In fact, that's what Peter says to Jesus when he's thinking, Lord Jesus, save me. And he does. Pulls him out of the water. Matthew 14. Great story. Love it. Now, prayer is when I'm talking to God. Supplication. That's this word here. 
te dese. That's in the in the dative case, and it is desis. D e long e s i s, desis. And this word means the best we can in terms of the difference between it and just talking to God in general sense is I'm making an urgent specific request. It's, it is the part where I say help. That's the thing that I want. Do you ever go to God in prayer? You know, you've got the conscience going on, right? Like I'm supposed to be praying. And so you do. So, okay, we're going to say a prayer. I pray with you all the time. Whenever I get a chance on the phone in person, we'll pray together, right? I know what my general desires for you are. I know what the Bible says you're supposed to have and what God wants out of you. So I'll pray for that all the time. But do you ever in your personal prayer life say, okay, well, pastor, I'm supposed to be praying. So you set aside some time to pray and you don't get to the thing as you're talking to God that you really want. The thing that's really bothering you because you're not reflective enough to think about it because you've got your categories. This is prayer time. This is when I worry about stuff. This is, <laughs> this is, this is work. The, the, this is my professional side, whatever. What you're supposed to do is all the time, Paul says you're supposed to be in prayer. I mean, it's an ongoing conversation with God. But do you ever think about that I'm not actually taking my problem to him? And so here's the rationale for verse six. Figure out what the problem is. Why are you worried? Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? Why? What's the problem? What is your problem? Just, I like to imagine R. Lee Ermey as a, as a, a, a Marine Corps drill instructor from the 60s get in my face and say, what is your problem? You know, that would be very helpful for me. Well, uh, let me think about what my, pro what have I done that, that what, it, what is in my mind? That's got a problem. A lot of times it'll be a sin that I've committed that I haven't wanted to deal with. A lot of times it's in the, I'm, uh, there's something back there that I'm feeling guilty about. And so I'm, I'm, I'm corrupted by that sense of guilt that I'm not even dealing with. That's part of the Pardon the expression, the sanctified psychology of your conscience and your guilt and your problem. A lot of times anxiety is there's a, there's a pee under all those mattresses, princesses, that's bothering you. And you've got to go deal with that. And we are all delicate souls at some point. By prayer and urgent specific requests. I've translated it petition. This is where you're telling God, this is the thing that I'm struggling with. This isn't a magic cookbook recipe or something, understand. But it is telling you, you need to take the thing that God has you dealing with, you need to take it to him. Help! And figure out what it is that you're really worried about. That you need to repent and change your thinking about that worry. Think about the categories that you have to suffer loss. The loss that you're worried about is really the way to think about it. It's very clear. You're worried about loss of security from health. Or finances. You're worried about loss of security from the, the collapse of, of, of key governmental or law enforcement institutions. You're worried about the, uh, the idea of them passing um, a, a toll tax on the, on the roads here so that now to get on 395, we have to pay just to drive on the highway because we, we aren't taxed enough in the gasoline with like the second highest gasoline rates in the whole country. And, and, and you're worried about them raising the electric bill again because we're so stupid. We keep voting for these thieves who are going to help us eventually probably set the thermostats in our houses because we don't know what we're doing. And you're worried about the loss of security from the further gouging of your finances where you can't even pay it already. You're worried about money. That's how we are. Tell him. God, it's the resources. They're not sufficient for what I'm trying to do. And maybe that brings some conviction that you need to live within your means. Amen. We need to learn that.
It's a struggle. But my point in, in that little, some of you are still stuck on Eversource. You're like, uh. <laughs> hey, it's coming. They're going to try to force us all to put panels on our house. Here's the thing I want you to understand. The thing that you're worried about is some sort of loss. And you're supposed to take that thought of what you might lose and connect it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that he saved you. He is saving you. He has you. What else am I worried about losing? People. If it's not money, it's people. A lot of times the real concern you have about people is the way they think of you. And the way that lets you think about yourself because you have the esteem of people. That's a real cause for anxiety in a lot of our hearts. And more and more as the clicks increase. You know, people keep getting clicks. Keep getting more likes and more looks and more, more whatever. We worry about the way we think of ourselves and how we can build an opinion of ourselves from the, from the, 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 the approval of others. And that's just all garbage. You have to flush all that with Paul. It's just all rubbish. Don't worry about it. Just disregard that. God cares about you, but you can meet all of the things that we worry about with the truth of God's word. You just have to ask and answer three questions. Who is God? Who does he make me? And what is he going to do with me? And that will solve this problem. But whatever the problem is, maybe it is not just your own imagination. Maybe it's a real problem. Maybe you're about to lose someone who you love to a critical illness, or maybe uh, your marriage is in such dire straits and the person that you're married to, as far as you can tell, honestly, between you and God has lost her, his mind. They've lost their mind. That happens. I know of many cases where we did fine. It was 20 years. And then I don't know this person anymore and I'm not making excuses. I want to be married to them, but they're a different person and they've left and I can't get them back. Disaster, horrible, crucial disasters in life. It's a real problem. It's a death when this kind of thing happens. What do you do about it? Well, you don't worry about it. You bring your petition right here, your urgent specific request to God. And as Jerry noted, with thanksgiving. Last week I told you this is the ground wire to the whole process. You don't say, God help, God help, God help without saying, and thank you for the help you've already given me. And while I'm at it, let's be a Christian about it. Thank you that this thing I'm going through is your will in Christ Jesus for me. And I don't know why this is your will for me or how you're working this together for good, but I'm trusting you that since I'm yours and since you're in charge, you have something good here and I'm trusting and I'm thanking you, but I sure do not like the pain I'm going through. This is how we think about our suffering. This is how we bring our requests to God with thanksgiving. Please thank him as you ask for the peace that you need. Please thank him as you bring your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, let's see if y'all noticed what happened last week. Why is there nothing red on, pay, on verse 7? Why have I not put anything in red? Because there's no command in verse 7. He doesn't command the peace of God to guard your hearts. He commands us not to worry and to bring our requests to God with thanksgiving. But this is the promise that goes with the commands. You do your part. This is what God does. This is what God does. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want the promises of Scripture to apply to you. 
And I told you all this last week. I want you to have this peace. And I can't make you have the peace. This is something that comes directly between you and God because of your rapport with him. It's your relationship with God that produces this because you bring your requests and you stop. If you have chosen to give into it, you stop the worry. And if you see the panic button and you could worry and fixate, and there's a whole lot of, a uh, whole lot of people that really want to worry because it feels good to them because they're, they've got some problems. They've got some dependencies on some dopamine that comes from worry. You don't do that. You reject that. You repent of that. And you make your request to God with thanksgiving. If you'll do it, the Bible says God will bring his peace. The fruit of the spirit is peace. And it goes beyond your comprehension. I don't know why I'm stabilized right now, but I am. I don't know why I can handle what I'm doing, but I can. I don't know. I can't have no accounting except God is gracious to me. And I, he has work for me to do. And he's letting me do it. That's how we proceed. Now I said a minute ago, I want you to have what God promises the Philippians. I want you to have what God promises the Philippians. How can you have these promises? You, you're not a Philippian. You're, you're a Prestonian or whatever. You're here in, in the People's, People's Republic of Connecticut. You're, you're, uh, you're here far away from Philippi. So how can you get what God promises the Philippians? Well, look at it. Verse 6 says, this is what you need to do. And verse 7 says, this is what God does. You want peace? Go run into your father's arms. That's what it is. It's the relationship with God. You want peace? You want, you want the, the, the problem you're facing to, to take its rightful place in your thinking? Go jump in your dad's lap and cling about his neck and tell him. It's a, it's a constant appeal to relationship here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all things. And I didn't give you a big definition of the word worry because I think you already know what that is. We're all really, we all have PhDs in worry. And I didn't say the problem goes away. It doesn't make it, I didn't say you're not going to hurt. I said, you need peace that soothes the hurt. And that's the, that's the deal. How do you get these promises to apply to you? I think the biggest promise, the biggest promise in Philippians is verse 19 of chapter four. Let's poach a little bit. Let's, let's go forward in time and pretend like it's December 27th or whatever and <laughs> read what Paul says to them. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, let's just forget the rest of the epistle and remember that one and say that all the time. You know, navigator style. Let's just say that as a verse. Do you know your memory verses? And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I know that verse and I believe it. I think you need to read it in context. This is a, a revelation from God through the apostle Paul to these people. And there's a reason why he says, and my God, it's the, and that's very interesting. Read it. 
Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And what is it? A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The offering, the bag of silver that Epaphroditus lugged here to Rome from Philippi, the massive gift you gave me, which puts me in ministry for another year. I've received it and I'm amply supplied. And that's what this paragraph, this last section is about is the giving. The giving that the Philippians, this thank you note portion. That's why he says, and my God will supply all your needs. You sacrificed and gave God an offering of fragrant aroma. And my God will supply all your needs. You have to read verse 18 to understand the promise of verse 19. You need to do what verse 6 says to get the peace of verse 7. And I'm not telling you that you give so that God will give you stuff or give you money. That's, that's wrong motivation. That's horrible. And James says, you ask, but you don't receive because you want to spend it on your pleasures. You have wrong motivations. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you want to verse 19 to soothe you, you need to be on mission with verse 18 and offer God the sacrifices that he wants because what he's giving you when he supplies your needs is I need to give some more sacrifices. He's backfilling you for his work and you're in his work and he provides more for you to work with. That's John 17. That's the rationale of glory. God, give me more glory. So I'll have more glory to give you. The more you give me, the more I can give you. And God is calling you in verses 18 and 19 of Philippians to a relationship of give and receive and give and receive with him. You've already received all that you have. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. You have the good word of God. Anytime you want it, you can feast on the things of God and keep your attention on Jesus Christ, despite the ridiculousness of our historical circumstances and what they presage toward the, the destinies of our children. I'm talking financially, politically, militarily. Horrible things on the horizon for the stupid things our children like leaders are doing with us. But right now, and for them, we're going to have the word and we're going to have God, the Holy Spirit, and we are infinitely wealthy. So use your wealth, use your riches that God's given you to do his work. And when you do, you can say with the Philippians, my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Don't take it out of context. Get on mission. You join the context, become a Philippian if you're struggling with this. I love these kinds of promises that really help us. Verse 13 is another one that we quote. It's, it's one of these verses. We don't know much about Philippians, but we know Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, I could even bring it into a little more technicolor in the Greek and from Greek to English. I can do all things by him who keeps on strengthening me or keeps on applying the capability to have strength or however, whatever, however you want to bring that in. Someone once said pouring the strength into me. There's no word for pouring here, but it just means it's this ongoing supply. So he's pouring. I can do all things. Well, what's he talking about? I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. I know how to do without and I know how to do with. That's what he's talking about. Meaning I can, I can make it on beans and a tarp and I can make it in a, in a mansion. I can do either way because I figured out the secret. That's what the all things I can do is talking about in verse 13. I just love when I learn what the Bible actually means uh, from what I've memorized because now we're, we're in the riches. 
In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of living in abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him. The secret is that Jesus empowers me to do whatever he wants me to do. And he does it through his Holy Spirit. And there's your, that's your life. Beloved, let's let these commands land on us and recognize that they need to apply to us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in all things by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, go on making your requests known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What remains, brethren? That's a mess. Whatever is true. I got a better slide for this. What remains, brethren? Whatever is true. Whatever is worthy. Whatever righteous. I keep saying whatever because the, the Greek word is in the verse just word for word translation, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing of good repute. If anything of arete of mortal moral excellence is my translation of this word. That's why we called our camp camp arete because we're going to focus on the things above and try to stimulate in these children an appetite for God's word to be taught to them, to, to, to serve God according to what his word actually says. We might play some games, get some energy out so they can get back in there and get in the word. If anything of moral excellence, if anything praiseworthy, what's the command on these things? Be thinking your Bible says dwell on these things maybe, but the word is to think, to reflect, to have this loaded into your stream of consciousness and have it be therefore characterizing who you are inside. This is occupation with Christ in terms of the things that Jesus gives us, the truth, the, our value, his righteousness, the things that are pure, pleasing, good repute. This is the way you're supposed to be oriented. Now think about the alternatives in the culture to, to, to dwelling here. Basically, you got to be in the word. You got to be in prayer to be this kind of person. What, what might you look at that would take you out of this? Pretty much anything, anywhere. <laughs> This is what we mean by being unstained by the world as we keep our attention on Jesus Christ and on his word. And this is, this is a very convicting thing, isn't it? Because we understand we're under grace, not under law and we're, we have liberty, but it's liberty to serve God. And you need to, you need to avoid the things that stain your soul. So you dwell on these things. And Paul knows that you're saved. Well, I know I'm going to heaven. So you know, maybe we'll look at this. Nope. You keep your attention on Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying only read the Bible. I'm saying you need to have your occupation, your focus on your savior. And I know of no way to do that without being in the word in a way that would be considered radical all the time. This is our focus. And then finally, the things also you learned and received and heard and saw in me. Listen to it. You learned, you received, you heard and saw. Learn and receive are a parallel. Heard and saw are in parallel. And so he's listing things about the whole or the whole realm of Christian ministry. I was there and you saw how I did. You, you, you wrote notes on what I taught. You listened carefully. You saw how I behaved. You heard me. But it wasn't just the teaching phase. It was what you saw me doing. You saw me shift from Bible time to tent making time. So we'd have something to share. And you saw me take what was given in your, in your offering eventually to the Thessalonians that I could go full-time in ministry. And you saw me uh, share with people uh, from the abundance that you had provided. And so these things be practicing. So it, this is really important. Christian leaders, all of you who are supposed to make disciples, 
You're supposed to, we're supposed to be examples for others that wouldn't only go by our precept, but would learn by our practice how to live. This is part, a big part of making disciples. And any conversation on disciple making, I think you have to include Philippians 4.9. Whatever you saw me doing, and, and we'll say, when I was doing it right, when I wasn't dropping the ball, when I was on mission. Paul's saying, I was on mission with you, Philippians. You practice these things. And that is a command. That's a command. It has a promise. Do you know there's a promise that goes with that command? And the God of peace will be with you. You will have fellowship with God because you, like me, will be on mission with him. And you won't be ignoring his call on your life to be a good soldier of the cross. You'll be marching right in line with me as I follow Jesus. Do you want the God of peace to be with you? You need to get in, get in the work. Get into his work. Get it, get it, shoulder his load. Carry his load with him. It's an easy burden. It's a light yoke. Uh, light burden, easy yoke. That's the promise. Whatever you saw Paul doing, let's do. This is why I am becoming somewhat of a radical Christian as I think about these things. Nobody thinks this way. Evangelical dumb doesn't think this way. We always find something less to focus on, like our legalistic rules. And we lose that perspective that focuses on Jesus Christ. Not for you, beloved. Let's be in the word so that we can be in, in a rapport, an ongoing give and take relationship with our Savior. Our Father, we praise you for your son and the life that you've given us. Even this morning, the, the taste of eternal life that's ours by our birthright because we've paid attention to your word. And the life-giving promises that come with the life-giving commands given to the church. The New Testament church is under, uh, on obligation, under notice to rejoice always in the Lord. Father, help us be people of joy and let it be genuine, not forced, not phony. Let our gentleness be made known to all men, Father. You've commanded it, provide it. Let us be what you want. We ask in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen.